Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. This morning I want to begin a new series entitled Entrusted. Entrusted, and today I want to talk to you about being entrusted with the gospel. Have you ever received an heirloom gift from a grandparent or a parent? It's one of those gifts that's kind of a marker gift for your family. And so you having it represents far more than just whatever the value of the uh, uh, object is. And oftentimes the objects really aren't worth anything to the world at large, but they mean a lot to you because of what it represents in your life. That's what an heirloom gift is all about. They carry a distinctive significance with them. And as such, with what you do with them, whether in displaying or taking care of them. You know, the value is determined not so much by the market, but by the relationship you had with the one who gave it to you. And so the way you handle an heirloom gift is done to honor the one who is the giver of that gift, a special priority in its care for you. Well, as we think this morning about a precious gift that's been given to us, that's what Entrusted is all about. How is it that we handle what has been given to us? Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read for us verses 3 through 14, and then we'll continue the message. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother uh, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. I promise you if the Apostle Paul was in a... In English grammar class when I was in school, he would have flunked. He uses more commas and more sentence fragments placed together, but he does it in an expert way. But reading it can be a challenge. Oh, I'm at the, no, I'm not at the end. Oh, here I'm at the end. I'm not at the end. Entrusted with the gospel. 
Paul, now advanced in years, is writing to a much younger Timothy while awaiting sentencing from his second imprisonment, this time in Rome. Things have gotten serious. In Paul's first imprisonment, it was house arrest. He basically lived at home with a Roman guard and he just couldn't go. He could welcome guests constantly, but he couldn't go anywhere. He, he had to be under constant guarding, not only for his supposed crimes against humanity of preaching the good news, but also for his own protection. There were people that wanted to kill him and wanted to get to him. But this imprisonment was different. He had made his appeal to Caesar and he was now in Rome. And if you were to go into the prison or the prison where he was being held, as I've walked supposedly in that place in Rome, it's basically a huge lavatory drain for the city where when rains come, the waters wash through the city streets and it's like a large bowl with a drain right in the middle. And if you go down through that drain, down into the bottom part, the water would flow into there and that's where the prisoners were held. Around the circular wall, they would be chained to the wall and sit or stand all day long in this dark, damp, muggy place. I remember walking down the steps to it and they were steps that you, you've gotta be pretty fit to be able to get down there. They're just hewn into the rock and I was, you know, you're kind of stumbling. There's no handrail, no OSHA wasn't in the place when they built these and, and you get down to the bottom and I remember looking back and thinking, wow, you gotta be careful. It wasn't easy to get down those steps and chains. They went, oh, those steps weren't there when Paul was here. They just lowered you down with a rope through the hole. I say all of this to say things had gotten serious for this man who was advanced in years. He was in prison and he knew he was facing the end of his life. And the words that he writes in 2 Timothy are serious words written in a serious manner. He is clarifying to this younger Timothy that he has trained up in the ministry what it is that is most important for Timothy to remember. He's also understanding that this is likely his last opportunity to get to impart any counsel, coaching, or encouragement to Timothy. You see, Timothy really wasn't any longer a kid like he had been when he first got involved with Paul, but he had some ministry experience now. He had been in ministry long enough to be familiar with the weight of gospel ministry but only long enough to be tempted to shrink back in the face of suffering without Paul's guidance and encouragement. In today's terms, you might say, Timothy had been in ministry long enough just to deconstruct his experience, but not long enough to see the faithfulness of God when he pressed through hard times. Paul exhorts Timothy to guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to him. He begins by telling Timothy how much of an encouragement Timothy has been to him. This is likely a reversal of what Timothy was thinking about how much encouragement Paul had been to Timothy. But here, Paul says, no, Timothy, you have been a great encouragement to me. And he reminds Timothy of the faith that he learned from his mother and from his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And that, that's a tag team pair right there, isn't it? Maybe you can remember your own grandmother or mother instilling the faith into you. I can I still hear my mother's voice regularly in the back of my mind when she's nowhere near me telling me, Lane, you know what you ought to do. Lane, 
you know what you're going to do. And I tell you, the prayers of a mother and a grandmother, and if you are either one of those, listen to me because you'll be tempted to think they're not very powerful. They have the power to overwhelm even a five-year-old that is bent on inflicting his own will on the world. They can take that will in their hands and mold it and shape it by the way they pray for it. You say, how do you know that? Because I am that five-year-old. And then I became six and seven and eight and the prayers of my grandmother and the prayers of my mother continued to shape and to mold me. And they believe things for me when the whole rest of the church said he'll be lucky to stay out of prison. That's what Paul is reminding Timothy of. Don't forget what your mother and your grandmother instilled in you. And he says, also, don't forget what God placed into you, the anointing that he put on your life that you received from the laying on of my hands. That was not just some religious ritual in the transfer of authority or the transfer of, of whatever the transfer would have been there. He said, but that was God anointing you for the work that he was calling you to do. And the people that he put in your life, he placed their hands on your head to say to you, this is now yours from the Lord for you. And then he reminds Timothy in chapter, in verse seven rather, of the spirit that God had given to him, that it was not a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. You see, Timothy was more than likely a young man given to some, some sort or manifestation of weakness. Timothy was likely a guy who was apt to turn and run when things got difficult. And Paul said, you're not going anywhere, stand here. Don't go anywhere, Timothy. And throughout his life, Paul had, when Timothy wanted to clock out and, and run away, Paul had said, no, stand, don't go, be here. And that's what he's reminding Timothy of here, that the spirit God gave to him is not the spirit of fear, but it's the spirit of God's eternal power. It's the spirit of God's marvelous love and of self-control. Some translations say a sound mind. They are one in the same. They are one in the same. You see, friends, what we see is that the Lord matured Timothy's faith from the very beginning, from the earliest days of his life, that, that God was working in his heart and in his mind to shape his life for the very call that God placed on his life in salvation. And he was empowering Timothy to lead as he had appointed him for leading. Paul is preparing Timothy for the great work of serving in gospel mission that stands before him for the years and the decades that will come long after Paul's life has passed. And so he writes to strengthen and to exhort him to stand firm in his leadership. And he reminds him that God is the one who has entrusted this responsibility to him because God is the one who entrusted the treasure of the gospel to his life. Paul draws from his own experience with Timothy would have been so familiar with walking beside him closely for so many years. Paul knows his own life will soon end. And he's doing all he can to ensure that he passes the baton of gospel mission to Timothy in this passage. You know, the athletic baton is an illustration I've used before. So if you've been around LifePoint for a few years ago, I cannot believe he's reusing an illustration. Listen, friends, when they're good, I'm going to keep using them. 
And especially when they work and they fit. And this one fits for us. An athletic baton, though, is an instrument that does a very unique thing. It's rather unimpressive, to be quite honest. When I first had the idea for this illustration about six years ago, I thought, you know what? I- I'm going to order one of those and just see what it's like. And when it came in the mail, it, was, it didn't cost much, so I was kind of shocked by that. And then I looked at it and went, this is rather unimpressive. It's just a piece of lightweight aluminum. It's hollow in the middle. There's really nothing to it. I mean, it feels cool, but... Who can't be a track star with one of these things? It's not the impressiveness of the baton, but rather it's the purpose of the baton. You see, this baton is the instrument that links each individual members of a team to be one. We're familiar with this. Team relays of track, what happens? Each individual runs their length of the track. Maybe it's one lap, maybe it's two. But friends, let me tell you, you could be Usain Bolt. But if you don't handle the baton correctly, you lose. You lose. Every leg of the race, your team could perform individually in a way that beats every other team on the track, that beats the time of every other team that is run in that competition. But if the baton is not correctly handled, it won't matter. You lose. You lose. That's what the baton does. It, it unites each individual member's effort to become one team. One team. The baton must be properly handled in order for the team to be victorious because if one person drops the baton, the whole team is disqualified. So the most important aspect of the baton is what? The handoff. Listen, friends, I'm not a track coach, but I feel like y'all understand this. This, I'm, not, I'm not teaching you anything earth-shattering or eye-opening here, correct? We understand. The most important aspect of the baton is the handoff. And here's the principle of the handoff. The person holding the baton is responsible for the placement of it into the recipient's hand. The person holding the baton is responsible for the handoff. Simple enough. When somebody's running away from you with their hands stuck behind you, not looking, they can't be responsible to take it. So the one placing it must firmly place it in their hand, making sure that they have it, and then release it in that. It's with that idea that I introduce this entrusted series and even this entrusted message today because I want you to understand what the baton of gospel ministry is for us in this message today. And here it is. God entrusts the treasure of the gospel to all who believe in Jesus to serve in our generation and pass it on to the next. God entrusts the treasure of the gospel to all who believe in Jesus to serve in our generation and to pass it on to the next. What does it mean to say that we've been entrusted with the gospel and how is it that we guard it as Paul commends uh, uh, Timothy to here? Well, I believe there must be three recognitions that mark us as entrusted with God's treasure. 
In other words, these three recognitions will provide for us an adequate handling and handing off of the baton of gospel ministry, this treasure of the gospel that we have been given. And Paul identifies these for us in these verses, verses 8 through 14 of 2 Timothy 1. The first recognition is this, we recognize the treasure that God has given to us in the gospel. We must recognize the treasure that God has given to us in the gospel. In 2015, we took a family vacation to Washington, D.C. There's nothing like the glory of family vacation, especially when it begins and ends with 16 plus hours in the car, sharing life together with one another. There's some sharing there that should never happen, but always doesn't fail to happen, right? That's the way it goes. Well, when we got to Washington, D.C., there's just so much to see. You really have to dial in. And unbeknownst to me, the Smithsonian Museum is not a museum. It is like a littering of museums everywhere that are impossibly long to get through with a lot of information. And I'm telling you, when your attention span is about seven minutes max, that can be a challenge. Fortunately, there were two of us in the family that operated in one way and two of us that didn't operate in the same way. So we, uh, incidentally, if you go to D.C., I, and you're going to hit a Smithsonian, hit the Air and Space Museum, it's got rides inside. So after like, I, you know, four or five minutes, I'm like done with all the plaques. I can't read anymore. I'm out. Bethany, let's go ride the ride. And that's what we did while Joshua tried to memorize every plaque. You know, we've gone seven floors up and down. We're done. 30 minutes later, he's still on the second plaque. <laughs> One of the Smithsonian's though houses what they call the Hope Diamond. Have you ever heard of the Hope Diamond? I had neither. 45.52 carats of, let me get this right, deep blue gem have no idea what that means, but that's the way it is described. Ladies, that's a rock to wear, right? I mean, that's like you got this big thing coming. It makes a Super Bowl ring look weak. It's massive. And, and if you go to see the Hope Diamond, we were like, well, sure, let's go see the Hope Diamond. This must be something. They stop you before you come into the room. And the security guard begins to give you the what for and all the details of the diamond. Now, Honestly, they tell you very little about the diamond other than this is, you know, one of the biggest diamonds, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff about its value. But then he begins to tell you what you need to understand is the security system and the complexities of it that protect the diamond. And he goes on and on about the multifaceted layers of security. Well, I tell you, everybody's out there waiting to get into the diamond and I'm asking questions about the security system. I started getting a little concerned that they were going to be suspicious when I would go up to him and go, you know, now if I were to do this, tell me, remind me again how the security system is going to, you know, because I cared nothing about the diamond, but I wanted to see that security system in action. I wanted somebody to pull the proverbial fire alarm, you know, I mean, let's just see this thing in action. Let's see the lasers begin to fire and those kinds of things. That was the interest of me. But it made complete sense to me that the system created to guard the diamond reflected the value of the diamond. 
The system was complex because the diamond was of immeasurable value. You see, when Paul exhorts Timothy to guard this gift, he begins by focusing on the value of the gift. What a treasure that we have in the gospel. It's the glory of life that God has given to us. And look what he says in verse, coming out of verse eight into verse nine. It's the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. God has given us eternal life. He has saved us from our sin and from the eternal condemnation that it has wreaked upon us. More than only that, he has called us to a holy calling, a calling that we could not understand for ourselves. We would never in and of ourselves uh, 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 envision for our life. But more importantly, that is completely transcendent from our life because he and he alone is holy. But this is what he has called us to. And then he tells us it's because of his own purpose and grace. This is the purpose of God for our lives. And this is the grace of God in our life to live in fulfillment of this holy calling that he has placed upon us. And he qualifies his purpose and grace in two ways when he says this, that God's purpose and grace was given in Jesus Christ before the ages began. In other words, there is an eternal glory in God's purpose for our salvation that was given in Jesus Christ before the ages began. That's a reference to Genesis 1 and 2 and when we see God create the world and time is, is, is begun at that point and it continues until the end of time. But what Paul is saying is that the purpose of God in salvation and in calling by his grace transcends this time constraint that we live within and it was given to Jesus Christ. One thing that we learn here is that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity that he didn't, uh, he was not created by God, but rather he was the eternal son of God from all eternity past. And the purpose of God in saving people for his glory was not a plan B that he implemented after Genesis 3 when sin entered. But it was in the heart of God for the glory of his holy calling to be revealed in the whole world by saving people, you and me. And maybe even those of you who are here today who've never become a Christian. This is the holy calling of God, that it was the plan of God in Christ Jesus before time, before the ages began. But not only that, look at what else it says, that it was God's purpose and grace manifested in Jesus Christ when he took on human form and became a man, the incarnation of Jesus becoming man to be made the sinless, perfect sacrifice for sin. So not only was it God's purpose in the eternal son of God, second member of the Godhead of the Trinity, but also Jesus Christ, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, or rather an excuse to deny or ignore God's command and will, but rather he humbled himself and obeyed to become a man, Paul writes in Philippians chapter two. And as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. That death was as the sinless, perfect sacrifice for sin for all who believe in him. In other words, 
before God because of Jesus Christ and by faith in him, we are no longer held guilty of our own sin of which we are guilty, but we are given his righteousness and set free because of him. This is the purpose and grace of God in his holy calling of salvation upon our life. You see, God's purpose and grace is revealed in Jesus Christ from all eternity for what? To abolish death and bring eternal life through the gospel. That's what Paul teaches here in verses nine and 10. It's been manifested, it has appeared. He has abolished death once for all and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Friends, what a gift of immeasurable value and glory. The crises of the ages is no longer a crisis for those who are in Christ Jesus. The crisis for all humanity is no longer a crisis for any who are in Christ Jesus. Just consider this for a moment. Since time began and sin entered in Genesis 3, we've been searching for an answer to this thing called death. And we've given it a lot of different steps in the process. We're trying to reverse it. We're trying to subvert it. We'll do whatever we can do to get away from it. But the fact of the matter is, without Christ, it is your foregone conclusion. And physical death pales in comparison to spiritual death. Because spiritual death is eternal separation from God. The one who created you for the very purpose and glory with which we've already referred to here today. But what Paul is saying is, in Christ Jesus, the light of the glory of God's plan to save you is revealed and made known. So that what is ultimate death and spiritual is no more, but eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ has come. This is the immeasurable gift of glory. You see, in the gospel, not our power, not our worth, not our merit, nor our nature, but in the gospel, it is the power of God over sin and death to bring eternal life to all who believe in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, friends, but when I measure the gift versus the demand, it doesn't seem to equal up. Seems like you ought to have to do more to get a gift that great, doesn't it? And God says, not only do you not have to do more, you can't do more. You receive it freely. What hope we have in Christ that is eternal and that has been made known to us. And best of all, our hope will not diminish, perish, spoil or fade in any way. We recognize that the treasure God has deposited to us in salvation is of immeasurable value. And while yet we face physical death, we do not face it without hope. It is not the end. It is not the end. You see, that's the, the potency of the gospel, friends, is not just some theory for way out when, but it's for today. It is the life that God brings to us in Jesus Christ by his spirit. And so when Paul says, but I am not ashamed. And he says to Timothy, do not be ashamed 
And the question immediately comes, with the treasure this glorious, what could there possibly be to be ashamed of for the power that conquers death? A power that's more than we could have imagined. What would we be ashamed of? Because of this, friends, the most glorious message of the ages is the most contentious battle of the ages and for our lives. And this is the second recognition that Paul writes for our understanding. We recognize that serving the gospel is accompanied by suffering because the enemy prowls to steal our treasure and thwart our mission. That serving the gospel is accompanied by suffering. Philippians chapter one, verse 29 tells us this is a promise from God. There's no way to get around it. And the reason is because the enemy prowls to try and steal our treasure and thwart our mission. When Peter describes the work of the enemy in this world to oppose the gospel, he chooses the king of all predators as the activity with which the aggressiveness of the enemy pursuing the mission of the gospel is attached. Paul addresses the reality of the enemy by recognizing that the gospel is his reason for suffering. Paul does not shrink back. He, he doesn't fumble in his words and try to make concessions or try to create other reasons for, well, you know, it's, it's, it's because of the gospel, but it's these other things. It's, it's other things that are going on. No, he says, listen, I am not ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner. He's saying, I'm in prison because of the gospel, but I have no shame in this. There's, there's not one ounce of hesitation in me. The importance of the gospel, friends, is due to the potency that it holds to abolish death and to give eternal life. And he says that is a message that is worthy of suffering for. So he uses the term guard to remind Timothy to recognize that the enemy is aggressively working to steal this treasure and to thwart the mission of our message. And friends, knowing the opposition does not cause us to shrink back. Well, if it's going to be dangerous, maybe we ought to reconsider. No, what Paul is saying, it absolutely is going to be dangerous, but you ought to give all the more energy to it. Rather, we engage the battle because the treasure of the gospel is more glorious than any suffering and serving it may bring. That's Paul's argument here. That's what he's teaching to us. And he's commending Timothy, but also us to recognize this. You see, suffering is the reality of every Christian that seeks to live a life faithful to Jesus Christ. And there is no Christianity that doesn't want to live faithful to Jesus. Be sure you get that part today in our day and age. There is no comfortable Christianity where you mitigate the terms and negotiate the outcome with God. That's a lie and that's a deception. And while plenty of pulpits in America today won't mention suffering for the sake of the gospel, if your gospel doesn't call you to suffer for the name of Christ, it's not gonna be there when you need it most. The enemy prowls to devour Christ followers, to defeat the work of the gospel, to destroy a faithful witness. And Paul is wanting to convince us that Jesus is worthy because the enemy is trying to convince us that he's not worthy. And while our opposition is always spiritual, it often manifests itself in human form. And that's why Paul in verse 15 
moves on to begin to name names in the later verses. And in other passages of scripture, he puts labels on these things. He said, because some people give in to the threats and the tactics. And as I mentioned earlier, Timothy was prone to this. We know that. But Paul had his hand in his back going, I, 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 nope, nope, we're not turning around here, Timothy. We're going to keep walking that way. Others become agents of the enemy who stir up strife and division among the fellowship. And Paul says here, we labored for them as we labored for anyone, but this is the way they responded. And Paul is saying to Timothy, I suffer because God appointed me preacher, apostle, and teacher. I don't suffer because people are mean. I don't suffer because the church has become something, nothing better than hypocrites. They're not what they claim to be. They don't know how to do it right here. They don't know how to do it right there. And the only reason I suffer is because people are mean, People are evil and people are wicked. No, Paul says, I suffer because God appointed me for this. And if there's any other explanation for it, you ought to get out of it. But when God makes the appointment, you walk into it. You don't back down because he didn't give us a spirit of running. He gave us a spirit of moving forward. And when we fail to recognize that there is an enemy prowling, we'll always find someone else to blame so we can choose our own way. And Paul says, don't do that, Timothy. Do not be ashamed of this message. Instead of ashamed, be convinced that Jesus is able to guard what he has entrusted to you. And he is able to guard your life that has been entrusted to him. Paul fights the good fight to advance the gospel because our treasure is worth it. The enemy is a defeated foe and our savior a worthy Lord. And he will guard us in our treasure until the day he comes for us. You see, suffering for the sake of the gospel is the call of every Christian because we recognize that the enemy does not want the gospel to advance. Suffering for the sake of the gospel is a reality that we willingly accept and we endure because we enter darkness to bring light and hope to those who are imprisoned in the kingdom of darkness. That's why we're here for him. We commend every Christian to share in suffering because we know that the glory of serving the gospel is greater than any measure of suffering that it may demand on our life. That's our second recognition. Our third recognition is this. We recognize that how we guard the treasure reveals what we believe about the treasure giver. Look at verses 13 and 14. How we guard the treasure reveals what we believe about the treasure giver. We guard the treasure God has given to us because we are convinced that in the gospel, he is able to guard our lives given to him. That's the second half of verse 12. And how do we do this? Well, we know that Jesus is worthy. We know his word is sufficient. And we know that his Holy Spirit enables God's power to the full measure in the life of every person who has been saved. You see, guard is not about us keeping away or keeping out. Guard is about us keeping watch over in a way that rightly secures the treasure. That's what the security system was all about. 
The treasure is entrusted to us. The difference between the Hope Diamond security system and our guarding of the treasure entrusted to us is everybody gets to look, nobody gets to touch. I'm a tactile learner. I need to touch something. But in the gospel, we want everybody to hear so everybody can take the full gift with you. Imagine if everybody that walked into the Smithsonian got their own Hope Diamond. And I'm not talking about a bad replica. I'm talking about the OG original. That's what the gospel is, friends. Everybody gets their own. That's what the gospel is all about. The treasure has been entrusted to us. Therefore, to guard it, we must actively entrust it to all whom we are able to. You see, we guard the treasure by following the pattern of the sound words in the faith and the love of Jesus Christ as Paul teaches here. These words are the whole counsel of God's word in the Bible. They are the doctrines of the faith that the apostles established in applying the counsel of God's word through the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is the truth we speak in love, Paul teaches in Ephesians 4, so that we all become like Jesus as it transforms us from glory to glory into his likeness. We preach and we teach the whole counsel of God's word. We minister and we encourage and we comfort and counsel in God's word because through it, the glory of God's eternal wisdom comes to bear upon our life by the finished work of Jesus Christ to bring the light of God's life in us and transform us more into his likeness. We are not what we were because of who he is. But praise God, because of who he is, we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is. That's the glory of the gospel. Friends, I tell you today, the treasure of the gospel is the baton in our hands. It has been placed in our hands, maybe by your mother, maybe by your grandmother in their prayers thereof. Maybe by the people around you in the church because your your family, your biological family was not one that entrusted the gospel to you. But God, by his grace, has surrounded your life with people who are teaching you the truth of his word, who are securely placing the baton of the gospel into your hand. And we are the holders of the baton. The responsibility is with us to place it into the hands of everyone to whom we have influence. It's a long, arduous, slow process, but it's one we must be meticulous and intentional in every way of what we do. Our children, our grandchildren, yea, our great-grandchildren and beyond are dependent upon what we do today, today. Because if today is not a faithful step with Jesus Christ, Tomorrow won't matter. We are the holders of the baton. And the young hearts and the young minds and some of you that aren't even young anymore are learning about the glory of this treasure each and every day and week of your life. God entrusts the treasure of the gospel to all who believe in Jesus to serve in our generation 
and to pass it on to the next. That's why we're here. That's why we do all that we do. I want to introduce you to this entrusted campaign that we are entering for the next five weeks. And I want to give you a very brief introduction to it. And then I want to call you to one action today in response. Entrusted is a two-year campaign of strengthening LifePoint Church to guard the gospel by deepening our identity in more Jesus and reaching farther by faithful witness to make a greater impact in the world. There are four priorities of this campaign that we'll be focused on, not only for the next, the next five weeks is merely an introduction to the campaign, which will be a two-year emphasis for us. The first priority is to savor the work of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We aim in this campaign to strengthen the unity of our church and the mission of Jesus Christ by sharing regular testimony of God's work among us in all of our ministries and in laboring to see more people come to know Jesus and having more baptisms over the next two years than we've ever had before. We savor the gospel of Jesus Christ when we celebrate all God has done for us in our treasure. The second priority of this campaign is to strengthen the body for gospel ministry. This is not new. We've been talking about this for weeks already. But following the pattern of faithful words and the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ demands that we teach and train people and encourage them in these words. And friends, that's the very essence of the heartbeat of disciple making. The great commission that Jesus gives in Matthew 28. We're focused as a church on connecting and engaging every person in life together for the body. We want you in community group because we believe not what it does for us, but what God does for you in Christian community. We believe in investing in the life of our students, in the life of our children through student life and kid life, teaching and training them week in and week out about the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, slowly but surely, week after week, placing the baton of the gospel into their hands. We want people to engage in servant teams to express this life of giftedness that God has given to be able to serve one another in the church to see all grown up in Christ. And so we are actively pursuing the strengthening of the body for gospel ministry. The third priority is we are stewarding the mission for resource maximization and missional development. You go, what do those big words mean? Well, I'll tell you. We have three principal goals of stewardship in the midst of this entrusted campaign. First of all, we want to increase the number of regular investors at LifePoint through faithful stewardship. I'll talk more about this and provide more details in one of the weeks of our campaign. But what we're wanting to do here is to cultivate as we train and encourage people to invest their whole life treasure money being part of that and I'll explain that later are we out to get your money no we're not we're after far more than that we want your heart because that's what God's coming for we not only want to increase the number of regular investors but we want to cultivate the spiritual gift of giving by helping more people in our church identify it for themselves and exercise this gift 
We're not trying to place this gift on anyone, but just as there is the gift of administration, the gift of teaching, the, the, all of the gifts of the scriptures, the gift of giving is one of those. And so often it kind of gets pushed under the rug because nobody wants to talk about that. But the people who have the gift of giving are suffocating because they're not sure how to express this gift and this desire that God has given to them. And we are saying, listen, we don't know who you are. We're asking you to identify yourself, but we want to cultivate and encourage, answer questions that you may have and help you understand how it is that you live out this gift that God has given to you. The third aspect of this is we want to raise a million dollars above our general tithes and offerings over the next 24 months to eradicate our current debt. Imagine this, a church at that point will be 21 years old with all that God has given to us and owing no man for it. You'll see me cry. Tears of joy and thanksgiving for that. We'll talk more details about that in the weeks to come. The fourth priority is sending the gospel for greater gospel impact. So a part of this is not just to do what we can do here and make us better. But friends, our conviction as a church is as we are strengthened by deepening our identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will do more and greater for the gospel not only across the street with our neighbor, but across the world and the nations that God has called us to. We're developing the largest impact partnerships to expand our gospel work in new regions of the world. You met one of those last week that's part of this campaign. But the reason it's important for us is because we're making larger commitments for gospel work to go forth than we've ever made before. And we're going to be part of that and that will be part of our campaign. Another part of it is this. We're praying to be able to identify our next 10 people whom God is calling either to full-time vocational ministry or to go to the nations as a missionary. We already have four of that 10. You'll meet them later. We will fulfill our church planning partnerships in this time and begin to identify next steps of investment for church planting. And we will develop new strategies to engage our city and love our neighbor with a focus on addressing poverty locally. You see, friends, what God is able to do eternally, he has enabled us by his Holy Spirit to serve that purpose here and now. And we guard the treasure that God has given to us in the gospel because we are convinced that in the gospel, he is able to guard our lives that are given to him. And the more deeply we are convinced of God's ableness, the more complete will be our selflessness. Where do we begin? Well, there's much that will transpire, but we need to begin where we always begin, in prayer. Our first act of love, our first labor of mission. 